Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're starting another new short series with James Jordan. We just finished walking through the book of Leviticus, and now we're going to take a step back and take a walk through the book of Exodus. In this talk titled Coming to Grips with Exodus, Jordan's going to talk about the fivefold structure of how God acts in the world and how we can see that in this book. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan with his lecture on Coming to Grips with Exodus. The book of Exodus does take us from slavery to Sabbath, and that is its major theme as it fits in the canon of Scripture as a whole. It shows Israel enslaved to its own sin, and as a result, enslaved to a political power, Egypt. And it shows God's action working them out of slavery in accordance with his law. The Exodus is not a power deliverance, first and foremost, but first and foremost a legal deliverance, whereby God sets forth his legal claims to his people, and they are delivered, and they are delivered out of bondage and into rest. The book opens with Israel in bondage, and it closes with the establishment of the tabernacle, the Sabbath itself. Along the way, we find a tremendous emphasis on the Sabbath. Sabbath laws begin and end the book of the covenant, as we'll see, and the laws concerning the release of slaves are all phrased in terms of the Sabbath, in terms of letting them go in the seventh year. So we'll try to observe some of these themes as we look at the book of Exodus, and that's why we've titled this series From Slavery to Sabbath. Now, first of all, we want to look at God's fivefold action in history because we want to be concerned primarily with what God is doing here in Exodus in order to get a vision of our Lord before us and so that we too will understand what God does with us in our lives and in our historical times. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the account of the creation of the world, and God's action in creating the world is simultaneously an act of setting up a covenantal arrangement. A covenantal arrangement. A covenantal arrangement is simply the structure and design of society and the world. The structure and design of society and the world. And in Genesis 1 through 6, we have the establishment of this covenantal arrangement as a result of God's fivefold action. God does certain things, and the result is a covenantal arrangement. After that, in the Bible, when the world falls apart because of sin, or refuses to mature because of sin, God will act to recreate the world and institute some new covenant. And so there are stages in history. Nevertheless, let's look briefly at these stages. In Genesis 1, the first thing we see after God makes the world is that he lays hold of it. He does this by his word, and God said, and then by saying things, he lays hold on what he's made and works with it. The second thing we see is that God, having laid hold of the world, he divides it and restructures it. He divides it and restructures it tearing it apart and making it different from the way it was before. This is an essential part of all covenant making in the Bible. 
So God takes hold of the sea and separates the sea into two parts, the waters above and waters below. And he takes hold of the sea and separates the land from the sea. So this action of dividing and restructuring is the second thing we see God do. The third thing we see God do is that he distributes the new world that he's made to various creatures. He gives out the heavens to the stars, makes them governors there. He gives the lower atmosphere and the land and the sea to birds and beasts and fish. And he gives each of these directions, laws, that they are to live by there in Genesis chapter 1. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He tells them to rule over times and seasons. He gives them directions, and that's what we do too. If I make some new thing by taking part of the creation and breaking it down and restructuring it, and then if I give it to you or sell it to you, I'll give you directions to go with it. If you go down to the store and buy something, it has directions. And similarly, when God distributes his creation, he gives directions or laws. The fourth thing we see God do is that he evaluates what he's made. We call this sanctions. He evaluates what he's made, and he evaluates what people do. So at the end of each day, God sees what he has done, and it's very good. And then also on the fifth day, he begins to bless what he's created. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He passes judgments and gives blessings. And finally, what God does is he arranges for his new creation to carry on into the future. He turns it over to somebody to administer. And in Genesis chapter 1, he turns it over to man, and God himself rests on the seventh day now that man has taken charge. And he gives man a command to carry out to the ends of the earth the creation order, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so man is now put in charge of the world. That's the succession and the rest that comes at the fifth stage. So, those are the five parts of God's action, how he establishes a covenant. He lays hold, he divides and restructures, he distributes various duties by giving directions and laws, he establishes sanctions, passing judgments, and finally he establishes a succession into the future. Now, in a very rough kind of a way, we can see the five books of Moses following this pattern. And we'll also see the book of Exodus itself follows this pattern if we look at what God does. In very broad kind of a way, we can see that the call of Abraham is the way God laid hold of the Israelite people. He called Abraham out of Ur. He laid hold on him, made promises to him, and told him that certain things were going to be certain ways. That is preeminently the act of laying hold. When we get to Exodus, which is where we are in these tapes, we have the act of dividing and restructuring because Israel is going to be completely changed into a new kind of socio-political order with a new symbolic sanctuary as a result of the actions that take place in the book of Exodus. And the nations also will be judged and Israel will be restructured as a result. And that all takes place in Exodus. Then we would expect God to give out to his people various responsibilities within the kingdom 
giving them directions or laws. And preeminently, the book of Leviticus is the book of laws. There are laws for the priests, laws for the high priests, laws for the Levites, laws for the ordinary Israelite citizen. And these categories distribute various functions to the various people in Israel and give them laws or directions appropriate to each of their tasks. Now you're going to have to do sacrifices. Well, let me give you the directions on how to do them and so forth. That's what Leviticus focuses on. Then in a broad kind of a way, we can look at the book of Numbers and see it as a book that has a lot to do with sanctions and passing judgments. Israel is constituted as an army right off the bat, and they're called upon to go into the land of Canaan and exercise God's sanctions against that land. When they refuse, then God judges them. God brings judgment upon them. And then he restores them, and then at the end of the book they are again, having been restored, they're beginning to carry out God's judgments against the Canaanites. So, in a way, the book of Numbers has a great deal to do with the sanctions or passing judgments or evaluations. And then finally, the fifth aspect is succession into the future. And Deuteronomy, which means second law, is just that. It contains songs and poems and sermons and other things that can be memorized and passed down through the generations because an artistic enhancement is always part of the succession into the future. And it's also Moses' testament to the people as he dies and passes it on to Joshua and them. The law itself is repeated for the new generation. So, in terms of how God is acting in history, that's a large overview. The book of Exodus shows us God having taken hold of the Israelite people now, dividing them, restructuring them, and recreating them into a new covenant order. So, that's our first point. We want to become familiar with God's fivefold action in history as he recreates the world and establishes new and renewed and more glorious covenants successively. Second thing we need to look at by way of background in coming to grips with Exodus is the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is kind of a prologue to Exodus. It takes its rise in chapter 37, where Joseph at the age of 17 was working with his brothers who were envious of him because his father recognized in Joseph gifts and moral qualities preeminent over those of the other children. And as a result, Jacob had honored Joseph and put him in charge of the brothers, or at least made him something of a spy, and given him resplendent robe indicating his privileged position in the house. To make matters worse, Joseph had had a couple of dreams in which he had dreamt that his entire family, father, mother, and brothers, would bow down to him at some point in the future. And Joseph was not wise enough to conceal these dreams from everyone. And so his brothers became more and more envious of him, and they attacked him and threw him into a pit. Now, what this story does, and a couple of others in context will do, is show us the moral degeneracy that's coming upon the house of Abraham. Isaac had fallen into sin, preferred Esau over Jacob. We don't know that Jacob is falling into sin here, but his sons certainly are. And they're growing up bad. They're growing up under Canaanite influence. They are out away from their father cheating on him. And when Joseph reports it, they become angry. Angry enough to try to kill him. And that's an extraordinary thing to think about 
one brother killing another brother within a Christian home. And yet that's what we have here, and what we see is a Canaanite influence. Now God will act to separate his people from that Canaanite influence and put them in another land while the iniquity of the Canaanites becomes full. Because only when the iniquity of the Canaanites is full will God be ready to give the land over to his people. So Joseph is sent down into Egypt. He's sold into slavery. They decide not to kill him after all, but to make money off of him. And then we have the story inserted in chapter 38 that Judah took a wife about the time Joseph went into slavery. And he bore sons to her over the years. And his first son married a woman named Tamar. Now, the chronology here is off. If Judah married at about the same time Joseph went down into Egypt, then Judah was about 20 when he got married. Then it would have been about 20 years later when he married off his son, Ur, to this woman Tamar. But by that time, 20 years later, they were probably about to go down into the land of Egypt. Joseph would have been 37 by that time, and that was the beginning of the years of famine. So it seems that about the time of the first year of famine, Ur married Tamar, but the Lord killed him. And so Judah gave his second son to this woman, Onan. He said, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up a son or seed for your brother. But Onan refused to do it, and God killed him. Now, we have two boys killed, and then Judah told his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. So this boy Shelah has to grow up for a few years here. And so it's possible that this story actually took place after the move into Egypt, but during that time, and this is an important point to keep in mind, the book of Chronicles shows us that during that time, while the Jews were living in the land of Goshen, they continued to pasture up in the land of Canaan and had some contact, but it was a decreasing contact during those years. Well, this story probably took place at that time, but the meaning of it is that, again, God's people are beginning to behave like Canaanites and not like Christians. Judah is seduced by Tamar, who disguises herself as a prostitute, and Judah apparently is willing to go into her, and that's, of course, a sin. And he's caught in his sin, and the result is he has two more children, Perez and Zerah. Well, moral degeneracy is what we're seeing here in this story, and again, it shows God's need to remove his people from contact with these Canaanites. Well, then we return to the story of Joseph, and we find that Joseph was working in Potiphar's house, and Joseph was, in contrast to Judah, far too honorable to commit adultery, sexual sin, and as a result of refusing the wife of Potiphar, he was thrown in jail. Potiphar was the jailer, of course, and Potiphar immediately put Joseph in charge of everything because Potiphar knew how smart Joseph was. While he was there, he encountered a cupbearer and a baker to Pharaoh and interpreted their dreams for them. And a couple of years later, when Pharaoh needed some dreams interpreted, the cupbearer remembered Joseph and Joseph was called out. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams properly to him. You'll remember the dreams of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And then at the age of 30, Joseph was suddenly catapulted to be second in command over all of Egypt. Well, the ensuing chapters here show how 
Joseph worked out a situation for his brothers to repent. And they do repent, and they come down into Egypt. Their names are all listed in chapter 46. In chapter 47, we're told that God's people were given the best part of Egypt. Throughout this section, we see the Egyptians continually rejoicing in the good fortune that comes to God's people in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant, which says, those who bless you, I will bless. And these Egyptians are anxious. They fall over themselves to bless Joseph and his house. It's apparent that they're converted, and the book of Genesis ends with the glorious picture of the conversion of the world and Christian influence in the land of Egypt, God's people happy in the land of Goshen. Well, that has to do with the themes of the book of Genesis, of course, the theme of the Abrahamic covenant, the conversion of the world, the nation's blessing Israel, the theme of the cultural mandate taking place and the world itself being a righteous place. All these themes in Genesis come to their climax here at the end of the book. But when we open Exodus, we find a change. And now we come to our third major point here in our overview, and that is the fall that takes place. God's people are put in a blessed circumstance, but then there is a fall that takes place. It'll be helpful for us, I think, to look at Exodus chapter 1. We read right at the beginning, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob, and that's important, were seventy in number, though Joseph was already in Egypt. Well, those who came from Jacob's loins were seventy in number, but a vastly much larger group of people came down into Egypt with him. Abraham had many servants. And we read throughout the book of Genesis of the various servants that the patriarchs had with them. And unquestionably those servants came. There were so many that came down into Egypt that they had to be given the land of Goshen to dwell in. You don't give a whole land just to 70 people and a few sheep and bulls. Scholars have estimated, based on Genesis 14, where it says that Abraham had 318 fighting men, trained men in his retinue, that Abraham's household was probably about 3,000. If that's the case, and those people have multiplied, it could have been up to 10 or 12 or 15,000 people that actually Jacob had responsibility for and who came down into Egypt. Well, plenty of people then, but only 70 from the loins of Jacob. Now, that distinction between those who are the loins of Jacob and all the servants, that distinction is going to be obliterated during the Egyptian sojourn. You'll never read about that distinction again in the Bible. Well, it says in verse 7, the sons of Israel were fruitful, count these as we go, were fruitful and teamed greatly, multiplied, became mighty with strength, strongly so that the land was filled with them. There are seven synonyms here for growth and increase, a sevenfold increase. And here they are, burgeoning in the land. And at this point, the Egyptians are favorable to them. Now, the next thing we read is, in the next paragraph, is that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That is, he knew who Joseph was. He did not acknowledge Joseph, which means he did not acknowledge the faith. He chose not to bless the people of Abraham. He chose instead to persecute them. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. 
We know based on what we just saw in Genesis that the sons of Jacob were drifting into sin. Now Joseph works out repentance for them and they do repent and they accept God's will and God's way. But they fell again in Egypt into sin and into apostasy. And so God brought judgment on them. We know that without being told it. It has to be that way because God doesn't bring judgment for no reason. But Joshua chapter 24 verse 14 says, Joshua tells the people to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river, that's Abraham, before his conversion, and in Egypt. And so they were serving other gods. And the result of Israel's fall was that the Egyptians also fell into sin and ceased worshiping the Lord and began to persecute the Israelites. And so a new king arose over Egypt who did not acknowledge Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let's deal wisely with them lest they multiply. And in the event of war, they join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And then we're told they built for Pharaoh store cities named Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. That's what the Egyptians tried to do. Now, in terms of the chronology, and we have a little chronological chart, this probably took place about a hundred years before the Exodus or so. There are 430 years from Abraham, call of Abraham, to the Exodus, and 215 of those years were spent in the land of Canaan under Egyptian domination. We know the Egyptians dominated the land of Canaan during this time because Abraham went down into Egypt when there was a famine. But basically he avoided the Egyptians and he and his sons did. Nevertheless, now they are in Egypt full force. But for a long period of time, Joseph was alive. Joseph died at 110 years, which was 70 years after they went down into Egypt. And so from 215 down to 70, uh, subtract 70 from that, and you get 145. So Joseph dies 145 years before the Exodus. And then there's a period of time when his memory is still strong. So my guess is that the oppression began about a hundred years before the Exodus, and the Jews were oppressed for about a hundred years. And we're told that the oppression got worse and worse. In verses 13 and 14, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. There are seven things listed here, by the way. Labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor, in mortar and bricks, at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously, six, labored upon them. Okay? Literally. So, the words labor and rigorously occur seven times, and there's the theme, the theme of judgment for sin. Well, this crucible breaks down the Abrahamic covenant in three ways, at least. First of all, it breaks down the distinction between those who are of the loins of Israel and those who are servants. We don't ever find that again. You see, during this oppression, those distinctions disappeared. Not only because the people multiplied and became more familiar with one another, but also because the Egyptians treated them all alike for about a hundred years. 
And so that distinction is gone, and they just merge into 12 tribes. And by the time of the Exodus, we find there are 12 tribes, and the tribes have elders and princes, and perhaps these are people that have some Abrahamic blood in them, but more likely they're just people who are recognized as elders. We don't know. Not much is said about them. They don't seem to count for much of anything. We don't read about them. Actual rule turns out to be by judges and not by hereditary princes descended from the loins of Jacob. So that political change is going to come. And that's the second thing, by the way. The first is the distinction between Israelites and servants breaks down and they become 12 tribes. The second is that rule ceases to be by clans and becomes by elders. And the elders are organized in chapter 18 of Exodus into elders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And these elders will rule over the tribes without reference to royal blood or the blood of Abraham. And the third change is symbolic. That is, they no longer worship at family altars and offer sacrifices at various altars around, but rather there will be established a tabernacle and the worship system will be changed to reflect the change in covenant. But, you see, during this period of oppression, their worship is torn up. So all of their traditions are torn up during this pulverizing period of oppression where God tears them up in order to restructure them. It's not a pleasant situation for a nation or an individual to go through when God lays hold and begins to tear your life up and restructure it. But it is necessary for us if we are to grow. And it's necessary for nations if they are to grow. And here it was necessary for Israel. So the first paragraph talked about how they were multiplying and fulfilling the cultural mandate. second paragraph talked about how they were reduced to slavery and God began to pulverize them and change them. The third paragraph stresses midwives, and the first paragraph of chapter 2 stresses a new birth, a new child. And we should look at these two as well here in our introductory consideration. It says in verse 15, The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, that is, the chiefs of the guilds, midwife guilds, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you're helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them upon a birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then he shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now that's just a lie. They could obviously have done what Pharaoh wanted. It says that they feared God and just flat disobeyed him. And then they lied to him. And it's entirely proper to lie to the serpent. The serpent had lied to Eve, and Eve's weapon against the serpent is to lie back. And it says, God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Now the word midwife has occurred seven times here, and it shows us those who will bring a new birth out of tribulation and difficulty. Well, in the climax of this first chapter, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you to cast into the Nile, every daughter you shall keep alive. So the midwives were not to do that, but now the Egyptian army would do it. Well, again, chronologically, this happens about the time of the birth of Moses. So about 80 years before the Exodus is when we get to this. I keep stressing this because it's very popular for people to think that the Jews suffered bondage for 430 years 
which is just not the case. They were under Egyptian domination for 430 years, but their actual bondage was about a century. Now in chapter 2 we read about the birth of Moses, and we find that a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. So Moses was a Levite. And when we see Moses do priestly things, it's useful to remember that he was of the tribe of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, that is, he was appropriate and good, and this, of course, symbolizes Moses' fairness in the eyes of God, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. She put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. In that way, she fulfilled the letter of the law. She threw her son into the river in an ark. And actually, the word here for basket is actually the word ark. And this is just like a new creation, just as the ark floated on the water in Genesis, bringing out a new creation. So Moses carries within himself the new creation of God. And Moses' sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him, and then we read about Pharaoh's daughter comes, and she finds the ark, and she adopts Moses and brings him up in her household. Verses 1 to 10, the word child occurs seven times, and we have the theme of a new birth. Well, that's by way of introduction. Fall and a new birth. And now we'll have to look at what happens to Moses and how God prepares him for his mission. We'll do that in the next lecture. Let's conclude this one by getting hold of a general outline of the book of Exodus. Let's talk our way through it and become familiar with the entire book. Most of us know a little bit about Moses and Pharaoh, and we've seen the Ten Commandments, which is accurate in some ways and very inaccurate in other ways. Maybe we'll be able to comment on that as we go. But let's get an outline of the book of Exodus. Again, we can find that God's action of recreating the world his fivefold action is found here in the book in kind of a broad way. And we can see that the book of Exodus itself results in a new creation. In chapters 1 through 4, we have God laying hold on the situation. And this is the call and outfitting of Moses. God calls him to be his servant. God trains him. God reveals himself to him, and God gives him his task. And this is God's transcendent laying hold of the situation. Then, in chapters 5 through 18, we have God's work of dividing and restructuring the social and cosmic situation. Particularly, this has to do with restructuring Israel away from Egypt. The Israelites have got to be separated from the Egyptians, and in the process, the Egyptian nation is destroyed. Simultaneously, the Israelites themselves undergo changes in that they recognize they have to come to recognize Moses and Aaron as leaders. The dividing of the Red Sea, again, speaks of this work of dividing and separating, and the people go through it, and then they come out into the wilderness, into a new situation, and at the end of this, what I consider a section of dividing and restructuring, we have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law in chapter 18, and he sets up the system of elders in Israel. The result is a new socio-political order, different from the one they'd had before. They had elders and they had tribal leaders, but now everything has been formalized, and what was a loose group of tribes suffering together has now become a nation.
Well, as we've seen, the third thing that God does is he distributes responsibilities and gives directions or laws. And this, of course, is found at Mount Sinai. And in a sense, the law-giving continues on through the book of Leviticus, but there are other things that go on here in Exodus that follow out the pattern in a smaller form. Chapter 19, God announces that he's going to give the law. In chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Chapters 21, 22, and 23, we have the Book of the Covenant. And chapter 25 on to 31, we have the laws for building the tabernacle. And there we have God's new directions for his new covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. Well, the next thing we would expect to find is sanctions, some form of judgment, and that happens in Exodus 32 and 33, because while Moses is up on the mountain getting the laws about how the tabernacle is to be built to worship God, the people are down at the foot of the mountain rejecting the worship of God and worshiping in a golden calf. And so God comes in the person of Moses and brings judgment upon them, shatters the tablets of the covenant, and God withdraws from the camp. He moves out and he tells Moses to pitch the tent of meeting outside the camp no one can approach. And those are the judgments that God brings upon Israel for their sin. But then finally we have a renewal and continuity section in chapters 34 to 40. In chapter 34, God decides to be gracious to Israel. He renews the law with them again. Moses spends another 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountain a second time. And then the tabernacle is built, and at the end of the book, God moves in and occupies the tabernacle, fills it with his presence. And that way, the continuity is established after the sanctions have been applied. That's an overall outline of the book. What we will do in our lectures is tour through the book as carefully as we can to get a good feel and a good grasp for what it's all about. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.